good morning. Let me um, show you a little book that I keep in my glove compartment. It's called Nature Bound, a pocket field guide. This is uh, a book that a man by the name of Ron Dawson used to live here in Boise, used to go to this church. He compiled this, wrote this. And it's a survival guide for uh, if you're lost in the wilderness. It is a great little book. It tells you how to you know, handle emergencies. It tells you how to uh, find uh, or build a fire, even in the snow, how to, to uh, build a shelter, how to conserve water. How to Get Food shows you all these different snares. And, and in fact, the majority of the book is actually pictures of plants that are edible and plants that are poisonous and trying to tell you which parts to eat and which parts not to. In the back, it's got a, a first aid, just a, a whole bunch of uh, instructions how to respond to different first aid emergencies. It's a great little book. But at the very back, there's a uh, section called When All Else Fails. And in the same, just step-by-step, very clear style that Ron wrote the rest of the book, he says, uh, you know, sometimes even when you do everything right, you're still going to be facing death. And then he just simply, clearly shares the gospel. This is what you do in that situation. And explains how you give your life to the Lord, how you spend eternity with him. This is the ultimate survival book. If I'm ever lost in the wilderness, I want this with me. Well, as we've been going through the book of 1 Peter, Peter has been confronting us with the reality that life is hard, that it's deadly, that uh, things will always go wrong to some degree. And the question is, how do we survive emotionally, spiritually? How do we survive in a world that's filled with heartache and trauma and circumstances that uh, events that are way out of our control the world around us kind of has its own answers for those questions tells us what we should do but unfortunately an, an awful lot of, of that information that the world gives us is bad information now Ron Dawson in, in his book he checked everything in this out with experts. In fact, on the back it says the whole book was reviewed by the U.S. Air Force Survival School. Uh, every uh, one of the, the, the pictures of plants, all the plant verification and toxicology was reviewed by five PhDs in the field. All of the first aid advice was reviewed by a couple of medical doctors. In fact, Bob Polk, who's part of this congregation, was in the first hour. He's one of the doctors that reviewed the first aid Uh, information here. See, Ron wanted to be sure that everything that was in here, that all of his information came from people who really knew what they were talking about. Well, how do we be sure that our information is from people who know what they're talking about? Well, Peter checks his information out with the one who knows. Uh, Peter is giving us what Jesus taught him. This is absolutely reliable information. And just as in in, uh, Dawson's book, there are a lot of stuff, a lot of things in there that uh, surprised me. Things that I would not have thought of. In fact, some things that uh, seem to go against popular belief. 
In the same way, some of the information Peter gives us is surprising. It goes against popular belief. Let's, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 5 through 11. I want to, uh, to uh, look at uh, the little bit of the context of, of what Peter's arguing here. Peter is giving us the basics of spiritual survival. These are things you absolutely have to know if you're going to survive spiritually. This is, this is the kind of conclusion to his book. Next week we'll have a summary and we'll wrap it all up. We'll look at the, the greetings at the end. But this is really the conclusions of Peter's arguments. Right in the middle of our passage is a pivotal verse, really just a a piece of a sentence. And it it, 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 is on the fact that is given us in that verse, everything hinges. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter's been working on this all the way through the book, trying to get us to come to grips with the fact that that God is good, that God loves you, that that he, He called you to Himself, you belong to Him, that it's His desire to give you life. And the real bottom line is God does care. We live in a world that doesn't. We call it a a cold, cruel world, a dog-eat-dog world. And we are told that nobody really cares. So you better take care of yourself. You better look out for your own needs because nobody else will. Your employer won't. They'll throw you over just to survive. Um, Social Security is not going to be there when you need it. So you better start taking care of things. Health care has become more and more heartless, cutthroat, driven by these robber barons of insurance companies. Your spouse won't care. So you better take care of yourself. Demand your own needs. Anyone who tells you they care is just trying to manipulate you, trying to get something from you. See, we uh, have bought in to that lie that no one out there cares. The next generation, Generation X, has uh, been characterized by the cynical conclusion that nobody cares so why should they? But where did they come to that conclusion? Where did they get that? From us. Their parents. So we bought into the lie that nobody cares. So we're going to look out for ourselves. We're going to take care of ourselves. And we have done that. Often at the expense of taking time with them. Loving them. Often at the expense of tearing their family apart so that we could get our needs met. You see, we bought into the lie that there's no one out there that cares. And so we've tried to take care of ourselves by ourselves. And all we've done is confirm the lie for the next generation, that nobody cares. And it's into this cynical, hopeless world that Peter simply asserts, God cares for you. It's a fact. Believe it. You can only believe it by faith. If you try to, to verify this fact uh, empirically, you know, do a scientific examination of all of life's experiences, 
You're going to be stuck. You're going to get caught between, uh, inescapably, between two plausible conclusions. Either God is good, He does care, but there are reasons why He's got to allow suffering to continue in this world, why there's still heartache in this world. Or on the other side, God doesn't care. He's just watching from a distance if He exists at all. Now, both of these are plausible but unverifiable hypotheses. But Jesus came to tell us that His Father does care. That's why Jesus came. He willingly gave His life to demonstrate, to establish, to prove that fact that His Father does care. So what it really boils down to is believing Him or not. That's what faith is. You believe Him or not. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He has crossed over from death to life. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the only compelling evidence that can establish that truth. It boils down to believe Him and through Him, the one who sent Him. Now again, let's uh, look at Peter's argument about the fact that God does care about how to survive emotionally, spiritually in this, this world. Let's look at it in context. Peter has just been talking to the elders. And he says, above all, you guys are to care as shepherds under the, the one who really cares, the chief shepherd, Jesus himself. And then he, he talks to some of the younger men. He says, submit to this care. This last, uh, well, actually, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to <clears throat> someone who left this church because they felt like nobody cared about them. And that broke my heart. I know the elders... They do care intensely. But this person didn't feel it. Didn't believe it. I know many of you. And I know that you care. But again, this person didn't feel it. Didn't believe it. And as we, as, as we continued to talk, uh, I found out that many of you had reached out to this person. This person had been involved in, in, in several of the ministries that the elders have worked hard to provide resources for and give direction so these ministries could happen. But still, as a matter of belief, they didn't believe it. And there was nothing I could say. Their interpretation of their experience was fixed. Then I was talking to another person who was uh, dealing with the same struggle only on a more fundamental level. They were struggling with whether God cares. See, they were looking at at the losses in their life and looking at their their, their sense of abandonment and their inner pain. And they were snared in the interpretation that God must not care. This reminds me of the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. In that book, Habakkuk comes to the same conclusion. God doesn't care. If he did, things would be different. And this angers him. It frustrates him. He starts to to drown in self-pity and frustration. And so he tells God off for not caring. I would have expected God to say, Oh, 
I do care. Please believe me. I'll be nice. That's not at all what God does. In fact, God almost picks a fight with Habakkuk. He says, if you come to this conclusion based on your experience, wait till you see what I do next. You'll never believe it. You see, God didn't back off at all. He didn't give in to Habakkuk's demands that God love him the way he wants to be loved in this way. That God act like Habakkuk was demanding that he act. In fact, God ups the ante. He makes the question harder for Habakkuk. Things got worse. The punchline of that book, of that encounter between God and Habakkuk, is when God declares, the righteous will live by faith. What he says is basically, listen, I love my people. I love you. And I will continue to love you. But I'm God. And you've got to deal with that. I will continue to love you. But you've got to choose. Do you believe me? Believe me and live. Call me a liar and die. You've got to choose. God paints it that starkly. Believe him and live. Disbelieve him and die. Now, by the end of the book, Habakkuk chooses to believe God. And even though things get much worse, get horribly worse, Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to dance on the mountaintops. You see, this is what Peter's talking about. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. This is what he says. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Now, what does it mean to... Uh, Clothe yourself with humility toward each other. And what does it mean to humble yourself before God? Well, first of all, humility is not self-depreciation. It is not hating yourself and tearing yourself down. Quite honestly, that is a form of self-centeredness, of self-centered pride. The opposite of humility is not just kind of obvious conceit, you know, the nose-in-the-air vanity. It's also the, the, the self-absorption of self-pity, being completely preoccupied with my needs, my feelings, and trying to subtly manipulate the universe into taking care of me. See, self-pity is self-absorption. It's a manifestation of pride, of that self-centeredness. When Peter says, clothe yourself in humility, he uses a word that literally means to put on the apron, the servant's apron of humility. You see, Jesus was humble, but he never played the, oh, I'm worthless, poor me game. In the upper room, he put on the servant's towel of humility. And he got on his knees. 
and he served his disciples. He washed their feet. He met their need. See, that's what we're talking about. Humility doesn't look like paralyzing inferiority feelings. It looks like believing the best in others and seeking to meet their needs, treating them as if they were more important than you. Now, the fact is they are not. We are all enormously important to God. He sent His Son to die for each one of you. How dare we, we, we disparage that? How dare we insult that by telling ourselves that we are worthless, that we don't have any value? The God of the universe loves you. You are that valuable. But you see, humility then means with that confidence, with that security, knowing how valuable I am to God, then I have the freedom to treat others as if they were more important, to seek their needs above my own. Again, how can we do that? How can I focus on others' needs? How can I focus on my wife's needs or my kids' needs when I am so needy? Well, I can only do that if I'm absolutely convinced that God cares for me. And He will take care of me. Humbling yourself under God, humility toward God, is saying, God, I trust you. God, I believe your hand is mighty. It's strong enough to take care of me. And I can take shelter under your hand and be secure. God, I believe you. I believe you more than I believe these horrible feelings of abandonment. I believe you more than I believe these horrible feelings of worthlessness. God, I believe you. You love me. Your plan, your, your, your intention, your desire is to lift me up. That's what... What Peter said in verse 6, humble yourself so that he can lift you up. Like Hannah Hennard says, God wants to give you hind's feet in high places. He wants to exalt you. He wants to fulfill you. He wants to make you the person you long to be. He wants to shower you with his glory. But when we pridefully disbelieve, when we begin to to, to feel like we've got to take care of ourselves by ourselves. We put ourselves in opposition to Him. When we want to be boss, we want to be in control. We want to demand that He love us like we say. And at those times, we put ourselves in a place where God needs to establish who is God. I told you this before, but I've got, in our family, we've got this little chihuahua. His name's Morty. And he's awfully cute. And he's his cutest when he thinks he's a big Rottweiler. But sometimes when he's thinking he's too big, I've got to make sure he understands <laughs> where he fits in the family. And no uncertain terms. You see, I- I've got to deal with his attitude when he gets confused. I've got to make sure he understands I am the human, he is the dog. See, if I don't deal with that, 
when he's feeling too big. We're going to have problems. And those problems are going to mean I'm going to have to get rid of him. Maybe even have him put to sleep if he starts biting. I can't praise him and, and, and pet him at those times, even though that's what I want to do. I can only do that when he humbles himself and trusts me and does what I tell him to do. Well, you see, the same thing is true with us and God. The only difference is that the distance in wisdom and superiority between God and me is much far greater than the distance between me and Morty. That's the only difference. You see, humbling myself before God means that I believe when he says that he cares. I believe him and I give him all of my I cast my cares on him because he cares for me. I believe he cares for me. And it's only foolish pride that keeps me worrying about things. It's thinking that I can handle it or that I have to handle it because he doesn't care. That is an insult. That's an affront to the God who loves me. And it's also deadly to me. You see, when I choose not to believe that He cares, then I'm forced to take care of myself, to focus on my needs. And that worry drives me to death. It causes me to pursue things that can never satisfy me, that will kill me. It causes me to jettison truly valuable priorities for foolish ones. It causes me to turn a deaf ear to God. To his word. See, Jesus taught Peter, don't worry about what you will eat and drink and what you will wear. You can't add an inch to your height or a minute to your life by worrying. God cares for you more than he cares for a flower which he dresses so beautifully, more than a sparrow which he feeds daily. Your father knows what you need. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. That's what, on several occasions, Jesus taught Peter. That's where Peter got all this. Now, does this mean that, that if I trust God and I seek his kingdom, then everything will go smoothly? No, of course not. We've already dealt with that myth. Trust God or not you will still have difficulties and heartache in life. The only difference is this. Trust God in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the pain, and He extends His grace. Supernatural peace in the midst of the pain. Healing through the pain and by the pain. See, pridefully turn away. Distrust Him in the midst of the difficulty. Try to grab control for yourself. And the pain will only leave you gutted, empty, all the more wounded. Those are the alternatives. Now, how do we stop worrying? Well, Paul gives us some very practical advice in uh, Philippians 4, 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You see, you can't just ignore crises in your life. You can't just ignore pain. It's right there. It's in front of you. You've got to, to, to deal with it. But the way you deal with it 
is to bring it before your God. Pour it out before Him with, with prayers and petition, telling Him your need, telling Him your feelings, your fears, your confusion. Pouring it all out before Him with thanksgiving. Now, it's not thanksgiving for the loss, for the death, for the illness, for the frustration. It's thanksgiving that God loves you, that He does care, and that His hand is mighty. He's strong enough to take care of the situation. But gratitude is key. C.S. Lewis says, Gratitude is the chief ingredient of joy. Gratitude crowds out the self-pity. It's the pinnacle of faith. So the way we stop worrying is we bring our needs, we bring our fears, we bring our confusion, we bring it all to Him. We lay it out before Him, asking Him for what we need, telling Him how we feel, and we do it with gratitude, gratefully affirming who He is, that He cares, that He is good, and that He is able to take care of us. And Peter says, starting with, with verse 8, <clears throat> Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Okay, there are wild animals out there. And a, and a good survival book is going to tell you how to deal with wild animals. If you are attacked by a bear, the key is to go passive, to curl up, to cover, try to cover and protect your neck and cover, protect your vital organs. And after a while, he'll get tired of chewing on you, get bored, and leave you alone, hopefully. But that's the theory. If you're attacked by a bear, don't fight back. Don't resist. Go passive. Cover up. However, if you're attacked by a mountain lion, you fight back with everything you have, noisily, violently. That's the way you deal with a lion attack. Well, our enemy is a lion. He's a noisy, obnoxious, roaring, prowling lion. And we need to know how to deal with him. When he attacks, don't go passive. Resist him, is the way Peter says. Fight back. Don't let him win. And he'll flee from you, James tells us. Peter started by saying, be self-controlled. I think more accurate, accurately, this, this means stay calm. Don't get thrown into a panic when things start to go wrong. He says, be alert. Pay attention to what's happening. Recognize what's going on. Don't be taken off guard. Now, how does the enemy attack? Well, we know from Scripture that Satan is a defeated enemy. He was stripped of all of his real power, all of his true authority at the cross. So that all he has left is bluff, our lies, deceit, darkness, Deception. That's all he has. Satan's tactic is to lie. In fact, that's what his name means. The devil means slanderer. He's the liar. He slanders God. He lies about God. And his lies about God really focus on whether God really cares. Whether God's looking out for you. Whether you matter to him. You see, even in the garden, 
That's where Satan was coming from. He, he said, hey, God's not looking out for you. He's trying to withhold something from you that you really need. That fruit will make you like him. And he's trying to protect himself at your expense. And Adam and Eve believed the lie. And they sinned. And they died. You see, that was the strategy. They didn't humble themselves before God. They chose to believe their own feelings. That, yeah, this is right. Rather than to believe God's word. You see, Satan has three main tactics in his lies. His deceit is trying to do three things, to, to cause three things. One, confusion. Two, fear. Three, lust. That's what his lies are all focused on. See, if he can make us confused in the midst of a difficulty, confused about who God is and whether God really loves us, confused about what he said, did God really say that? We, we get so confused that we, don't, we read the Bible and it makes no sense to us because we're so confused. And we don't obey it because we've allowed ourselves to get all turned around about, about what God is trying to say. Again, in the garden, it's what God, or what, what, what Satan did with Eve, what the serpent did. He said, now did God really say that if you touch this, you're going to die? She got confused. She allowed herself to be confused about God's goodness, about the fact that God cares, about what God really said. The second tactic is to create fear. Fear that, that God isn't going to take care of us, that you better take care of yourself. You better watch out, because if you let God take care of it, He's going to drop the ball. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get destroyed. See, He flushes us, Satan flushes us out from under God's loving, protective hand because we get scared and we bolt. And the third tactic was, was lust. What Satan does is he holds other things out. He says, this is what you really need. You know, they look at the, at the fruit and it looks good for food. And you say, yeah, that's what will fulfill me. That's what I need. That's what will give me life. So we go after these things. We pursue these things. We eat the fruit. We pursue wealth. We try to find escape in sexual sin. We, 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 we look at selfishness. That's what's going to fulfill me. We go after these things and they leave us dead, not more alive. What Peter's telling us is to wake up. Don't get thrown into a panic. Look what's happening. Don't be taken off guard. See what the enemy's trying to do and resist him. We can resist the slanderer. How? Well, by standing firm in your faith. What is faith? Faith is simply believing God. Standing firm in your faith means you continue to believe Him. That's what faith is. You continue to believe that He cares, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. You continue to believe what He said in His Word, rather than listening to all of the lies that the enemy is feeding us through the world and through our emotions. See, standing firm in your faith means saying God is good. God is looking out for me. He does care. And it means continuing to believe what He has said 
in his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, or sex alone, or wealth alone, or prestige alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Stand firm in your faith. And this is aided, this is, is helped by looking at our brothers and sisters who are going through the same stuff we are. Peter says, your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are going through what you are going through. Other believers have been through what you're going through. Others are going through it right now. We need each other. We need to see God's grace extended to others so that it makes it uh, easier for us to believe that that grace will be extended to us in our need as well. We need each other. You see, lions typically pick off the stragglers, the isolated, the wounded who don't keep up with the herd. We need each other. We need... Others to remind us by their lives and by their words of the truth of who God is. Of the truth of what he said in his word. It's, it's only foolish pride that keeps us from turning to each other. To, to bring our, our confusion. To, 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 to talk about our fears and our lusts. We need to turn to each other even though it feels Humiliating. Again, it's the first step in Satan's strategy to isolate us as soon as the confusion starts or as soon as the fear starts or as soon as the lust starts. We say, oh, I can't tell anybody this. What will they think? Who cares? Run to each other. Right now, I'm dealing with some particularly bothersome sins in my life. But I know that if I get isolated, I will be devoured. The enemy taunts, well, wait a minute, you're a pastor. What will people think? You're not supposed to struggle. You're not supposed to need others. Garbage. Those are lies. We need each other. None of us stand alone. And quite honestly, I love you people, but I don't give a rip what you think. This is about survival. And that's what matters. I know your parents told you, your mother told you, that it was important to have clean underwear in case you got in an automobile accident. <laughs> but it's not. The paramedic's going to cut it off without a glance because it just isn't important. Your survival is. See, Satan would separate us from the herd and then devour us. Peter concludes, starting with verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter calls God the God of all grace. Let me just read to you the first two definitions in the Greek lexicon for the word grace. Number one. That which gives joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. Number two, goodwill, loving kindness, favor. You see, that's God. That's what God 
is like. He is the giver of joy and uh, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. And He is filled with goodwill, with love, kindness, favor. And don't ever forget that. And don't listen to anybody who tells you different. He has called you to eternal glory in Christ. That is your ultimate future. Don't lose sight of that. That's where you're going. But that doesn't mean there won't be suffering now. There will be. And don't listen to the world when it says it doesn't have to be that way. If it didn't have to be that way, God wouldn't let it be that way. But after you have suffered for a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong and make you firm and make you steadfast. See, this is the wonderful promise that we have in Christ. When you humble yourself before God's mighty, loving hand, this is what he will use your suffering to accomplish. Now, the word restore here, that he, when he said he will restore you, means to mend, to repair, to heal. See, suffering in God's hands heals us, as contradictory as that feels. I mean, we're afraid that suffering is going to wound us and destroy us. But when we trust God, he uses the suffering to actually heal us. And it says to make you strong. That actually means to be structurally strong, to have a solid foundation. God uses suffering to dig out our foundation, to get to the bedrock in our life, to make sure there's something solid there. And when he gets there, what we find is the solid rock of the life of Jesus in our hearts, in our, in our core, the center of our being. You see, it hurts to be excavated. But we so often live on the superficial, focused on lesser desires and needs. And we rarely dig back down to the foundation to find the life of Christ, to find that heart's desire to belong completely to God, to trust Him. He says He will make you firm. This means to give you strength and resilience, the ability to handle life courageously and it will make you steadfast this means to settle you that's the way the King James Version translates this this will settle you it will calm you it will give you that quiet solid strength see if you trust God if you really believe that he does care that he is able if you'll only trust him he will make you the person you long to be. He'll make you a real grown-up. Healed, whole, strong, stable, founded, solid. And that's what we long to be. People who can pursue righteousness with love. Now, if this is true, if God does care... If this is his plan, if this is what he wants to do for us, make us whole and healthy and strong and stable. And the only alternatives are to be destroyed by life and to be devoured by the enemy. 
Well, then our deepest heart's desire becomes to to give God control of our lives, to give Him all the authority in our lives, to give Him all the power in our lives. That's what Peter says. He says, To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So this is what it means to humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before Him. That is the key to survival. Humble yourself before, or therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. He really does. God cares. Believe it. Let's pray. Lord God, when uh, we suffer, it becomes hard to believe. We don't feel your care. So often, so often the suffering that distracts us isn't the crisis, isn't the big loss, but it's the suffering of, of emptiness, the heartache when uh, life isn't what we thought it would be, when our marriage isn't what we had dreamed it would be, when our jobs aren't giving us what we thought they would give us when, when uh, we face the reality that we're not the people that we thought we were. That ache inside of us, that, that, that fear, that confusion, the enemy moves in, separates us out, and devours us. Lord, thank you for your word, which is able to bring us back to reality, to open our eyes so that we see the tactics of the enemy, we see your goodness, that you do care. Lord, give us faith. Give us the ability to tenaciously hold on to the truth of your character, that you care about us, that you are strong enough to take care of us, that you will do it. Because, Lord, we want you to use the suffering in our life for a good purpose. We don't want it wasted. We want to become like you. We want to become the men and women that you can make us strong, loving, and mature. Or we just ask that by uh, your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, that you accomplish this work in us. pray in his name. Amen.